the First Christian Church of Chiefland brings you the good news. And now, Tom Show. This morning I'd like to preach a sermon I've entitled The Devil's Devices. As we're going to be preaching this morning out of 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. 1 John chapter 2, 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Our great God, Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as we look into these three scriptures that we'll understand a little bit more about the devil and the things he uses to try to get us to sin. The temptations that come our way, Lord, fit into these three categories. So help us to be aware of his devices. Help us to understand more the temptations and how we should avoid them. And I pray for your guidance through the Holy Scripture to help us to understand these things and to help me, Lord, to preach the sermon this morning. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, love is essentially the giving of self. In the Greek language, there are three words, all of which are translated love. They do not represent three kinds of love, but three motives for self-giving. The first is eros. Eros is the giving of self for the sake of what one gets in return. It is where we get our word erotic. The second, phileo, is the giving of self to that which is attractive, as to a person with whom we are personally, naturally compatible. In modern parlance, this word is more accurately represented with like than love. For instance, the city of Philadelphia comes from the word phileo, which means the city of brotherly love. Boy, they forgot that a long time ago. <laughs> I'm from Pennsylvania. I can say that. The third is agape. Agape is the love of the will. It gives self because it decides to do so. Regardless of what it may or may not get in return, and regardless of whether it is personally attracted to its object, this third motive, agape, is the only one of the three that can be commanded. Indeed, it is the only one that in the Bible is commanded. God commands us to agape love. Love unconditionally. That's the key. Agape is the word translated love in this present text. It is also the love of John 3.16 and of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is the love of 1 John chapter 4.8 which says God is love. Since God is love and man is made in the image of God, man cannot but love something. Since love is essentially the giving of self, I give myself to that which I decide to love. It's my choice. It is impossible, listen to me, it's impossible to give self to two opposing 
masters. Therefore, if I love the world, I cannot love the Father. This conclusion is supported by such statements as this. In, Jesus said it in Matthew chapter two, uh, 6, verse 24. No man or no one can serve two masters, Jesus said. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James wrote, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. In other words, if you want to make an enemy of God, be a friend with the people of the world. And I'm not talking about individually. I'm talking about what they do. Go ahead out there and act just like them. And God will be your enemy. That's what he was saying. But I can love the world because I love the Father. Did you catch that? I can love the world because I love the Father. What do I do for the world? I tell them about Jesus. That's why I'm to love the world. So I can teach them about Jesus. But I'm not to love what they do. Why? It's because of the love the Father has for the world. You know, Jesus died for those people out there just like he died for those people in here. John makes no claim that the things of the world are in and of themselves sinful. As we look more closely at John's identification of that, it becomes apparent that they are important and often even essential to life in this time and space set up of ours. John's plea is not to condemn the things of the world or to pretend that we do not need or ought not use them. His plea is, do not have the habit of loving of giving yourself regardless of the consequences to these things. It is rather startling to realize that love, which is the very essence of life when directed properly, is also the cause of death when misdirected. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are ignorant of his devices. How many of you like to be taken advantage of? Nobody likes that. So why do we let Satan do it? Take advantage of us. And why did Paul say? Because we are ignorant of his devices. In other words, we're ignorant of the tools that he uses to get us, to tempt us to sin. We can't be ignorant. Now the we in that sentence refers to Paul and the Corinthian Christians. And as I read the passage, I asked myself this question. Tom... Are you and the Christians at Chiefland ignorant of the devil's devices? Now, I can answer for me, but I can't answer for you. So this sermon has been prepared to teach us about the devil and his devices, or the threefold side of evil. You see, John gives us the three devices the devil uses to tempt us to sin, and we can contrast these three devices you, in a great example. We can use Eve... And Jesus. The first is the device, and we're dealing with verse 16 here, all three in verse 16. The first advice that we see in how the devil tempts us to sin is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. John tells Satan's device in this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. He says that these things are of the world, not of the Father. And if they're not of the Father, guess what we should do? <laughs> Stay away from these three things. 
In the first two instances, the lust of the flesh and lust of eyes is translated in many of our English versions as lust, but perhaps the better translation is desire. Because there are good desires and bad desires. Well, people have a hard time with the phrase good lust, don't they? The word lust, which literally means merely a desire to gratify the senses and appetites, has fallen into bad usage. It has come to be associated in modern phraseology almost exclusively with excessive and unrestrained sexual gratification. But the, this word in the Greek, this word lust or desire in the Greek, epithumia, which John uses, does not denote that which is of itself wrong, nor is it particularly concerned with sex per se. <coughs> Excuse me. Rather, the word describes all natural God-given drives that are common to man. For example, in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 16, this is what it says, When the hour had come, he being Jesus sat down, and the twelve apostles with him, then he said to them, With fervent epithumia, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It says right there, Jesus said, with fervent desire, or the same word, with fervent lust, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Does that make Jesus a sinner? No. Not at all. He just said, I... Basically, in our vernacular day, I was just so excited and couldn't wait to share this Passover with you. You see, this would be in our vernacular a good desire. Was something he was looking forward to. Desires in this sense include sex, but it also includes the other normal appetites. When applied to the flesh, it includes the appetite for food, for sleep, for drink. For those things generally called the necessities of life. And there is nothing essentially wrong with any of these normal desires of the flesh. On the contrary, it is doubtful if one can remain physically healthy for long without them. But John insists we must not have the habit, that is, it must not be the course of our lives to give ourselves regardless of the consequences to these desires of the flesh. In other words, if Jesus would have said something like, I constantly lust for this, and then maybe we say, well, it, it sounds like he's making it a habit. Yeah, I just can't wait to sit down with the, having wine and cheese with you guys <laughs> every day. And you know, you know I notice uh, we, keep, we, we go through more bottles each day than we did the previous day. You see, then we have a real problem with you know, what Jesus is saying here. But that's not what he was saying. He was just excited about getting to sit down with this final Passover meal with them. There was nothing wrong with that. But what John is saying is don't make this a habit. Don't make it a habit where your love for these things overtake you. And they would blots out your love for the Father. For instance, let's take a look at these two contrasts, Eve and Jesus. First we have Eve. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says that Eve saw that the tree was good for food. Okay? 
Here we see the serpent in the garden with Eve. Lo, behold, the first evil desire used on Eve was a temptation that went after her fleshly desires. Saw that the tree was good for food. Now, how did she know the tree was good for food? Was the serpent eating the forbidden fruit, telling her how good it tasted? Brothers and sisters, we must be careful of the devil. He is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's one who defies the word of God. In John chapter 8, verse 44, John wrote these words you are, said that Jesus said, You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So did she get the knowledge from uh, the serpent that, hey, this tastes pretty good. <laughs> you ought, hey, Eve, you ought to try this. This is good stuff. Listen to what it says about the old serpent. In the first four verses of that third chapter, from where we get to her looking and seeing good food, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, come here. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay, God said that, right? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, <laughs> You will not surely die. God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan will try to cast doubt in your mind about the word of God. God didn't say anything to Eve and Adam about touching the tree. All God said was, you shall not eat of that tree. You see how Satan just, she slipped just a little bit more in there, added to the word of God. Don't touch it. That God never said that. So we see Eve, she looked and she saw good fruit. Now, the problem is God said, don't eat of that fruit. Don't care how good it looks. Don't eat it. And Jake said, remember in Matthew now chapter 4, old Satan's got Jesus out there. He's been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. And we know that Satan's been trying to tempt Jesus for 40 days. But on that 40th day, here old Satan comes along, knocks on Jesus' door again. And in verse 3 it says, Satan said, command that these stones become bread. Now remember, Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. And Jesus was tempted just like Eve was. Jesus was hungry just like Eve was. His flesh was put to the test, but he would not gratify the lust of the flesh. There's the difference between Jesus and Eve. She gives in and Jesus denies the desires of the flesh. They were both responsible for their actions. Our world has been infected with the Flip Wilson theology. Now I know in this crowd you all know who Flip Wilson is, right? Most of you do. 
Lisa's probably too young to know who <laughs> Flip Wilson is. And that's a good thing. <laughs> but Flip Wilson, he had the, the, he made this statement. I think it was on a show called Laugh-In. The devil made me do it, honey! <laughs> that's my best Flip Wilson impersonation. cannot make you do anything. Jesus proves that statement false. If ever there was a man the devil would have made sin, it would have been Jesus. That statement teaches a person is not responsible for their actions when in fact the Bible teaches us we are. Well, I don't know why I killed that person, officer, that the devil made me do it. So that means I'm should be I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty for robbing the bank, embezzling $500,000. The devil made me do it. Well, gosh, judge, the devil made me steal all those cars. It's not my fault. You see, the denial of responsibility is a result of the fall. In other words, shifting the blame. How do I know that? Well, it starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Verse 9 of the third chapter of Genesis. The Lord called Adam and said, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Well, who told you you were naked? In other words, you've been running around the garden for all these days and you didn't have a stitch on and suddenly you realize you're naked. Uh-oh. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded that you should not eat? And Adam said, yep. No, that's not what he said. He said this. you got to love Adam in a very sad kind of way. He said, the woman you gave to me be with me. She gave me the tree fruit and I ate. The woman, what? You gave me. That's almost like saying, you know, this is your fault. You hadn't given her to me. I'd have never ate that fruit. <laughs> and the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And she said, The serpent deceived me! And I ate. You see, they didn't even know Flip Wilson! <laughs> and they were, they were blaming somebody else. What did Adam and Eve do that is so customary to so many people today when they sin? They want to shift the blame. Adam shifted it to God. God didn't like that. Then he shifted it to the woman. It's not my fault, God. You're responsible. You made her this way. I mean, yes, she looked fine, but why didn't you give me an ugly wife? Maybe I wanted to listen to her. And then what's Eve do? She blames the serpent. Now Freudian psychology hasn't helped either. He blames everything on what was done to you as a child. It was just, you must have had a poor upbringing. Anytime you see a denial of responsibility, you'll find the devil. Now I believe in learned behavior. We behave many times because we learned it. But I also believe in personal responsibility.
I'm sure we all do things a certain way and we learn this certain way from our parents. But if their action was sinful, we will be held accountable if we continue in that way. Remember, we are free will beings created that way by God and held accountable for our own actions. On the day of judgment, God's not going to hold us accountable because our parents taught us to do it that way. God's going to hold us accountable because we had a chance to change it. And we chose not to. That's the lust of the flesh between Eve and Jesus. Number two, how about the lust of the eyes? The lust of the eyes. When applied as John applies it here in verse 16, the desire of the eyes, the word again, epithumia, shifts in emphasis from those appetites and drives associated with the physical body to our senses, in particular our eyes, the things we look at. C.H. Dodd calls this the tendency to be captivated by outward show. It would seem that we are confronted here with those things which usually answer to the name culture. Culture. We can think of culture as education and what we become because we are well educated. That's number one. Number two would be our social status in the eyes of others. Number three, our gathering of material possessions, etc. Education, status, material possessions are not sinful in and of themselves but John's plea again is this do not have the habit of loving or giving ourselves to these normal desires I used this joke once about a a dear friend of uh, well actually wasn't about her but uh, my good friend Joe leaned over and said he's talking about you honey I used the illustration as how many women say I have nothing to wear to the party And you walk into her three closets and she has all kinds of dresses. And you know what she'll say? I've already worn those to a party. Now that might be quite the exaggeration, but seriously, isn't that what we're talking about? The lust of the eyes here? I have nothing to wear. It's because of how I'm going to look when I arrive at the party. And the worst possible thing to happen and when you go out to that, that special party is, Lord forbid, you walk in and there's your best friend with the exact same dress, style, color, shoes, purse, and everything else. And you look at me like, how dare she wear my dress? Wow! I'm going to leave because I can't be seen wearing the same dress as her. Now I know none of you would ever do that. Your name's not Kardashian. And I don't know the Kardashians would do that, but seriously. The lust of the eyes. We must be careful. Remember what it said there in Genesis 3, 6? Eve said that it was pleasant to the eyes. It was pleasant. She wasn't permitted to have the fruit, yet the devil made it so appealing to the eyes, she just had to have it. You know, she looked at it and started to think, it's like, boy, that looks pretty good. Hmm. Wow, it's a couple hours till dinner. I didn't have much for lunch. Hmm. Nobody will ever know. 
You know, the devil has not changed, has he? If there's something that appeals to your eye, make sure it isn't a desire of the devil. I can always hear it like this. Wow, honey. I think we can afford that. And honey's saying, are you kidding me? Did you see the price tag? It's not that much. And maybe not for somebody named Rockefeller. But we'll have to take three mortgages to buy that. Now I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. See if you see what I'm talking about here. Wow! Look at that. She's gorgeous. Would you look at those beautiful curves? I sure could have a great time with her. We could sure make some sweet music together. I'd sure like to touch that. Now what am I referring to? How many of you think I'm referring to a woman? Be honest. Nobody. Well, what if I told you I was? Shame on me. But you know, I could still be talking about a car, a sailboat, a horse. It all fit. Depending on my desire for what I'm looking at. But in the whole scheme of things, if I wrongly desire any of these things, it would be wrong and sinful, wouldn't it? <laughs> a cheeseburger. I know what Ted's thinking this close to lunch. <laughs> you think about it. Eve saw things were pleasant to the eyes. What about Jesus? Again, the devil took him up on the exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It says, Devil showed them all to Jesus. This call could be yours. All you have to do is fall down on your knees and worship me. You see, the devil has power, folks. He can make you financially successful. He can move you up in the world where you live. But it will cost you. You must worship him. The devil is on the ego trip. He wants people to bow down and worship him. The devil may help you become successful, but with him you have no guarantee you'll stay there. There was a man who showed the preacher his catch of fish. He thought they were great. He was happy, static, on cloud nine, but he was deceived. He caught them on a Sunday. He hadn't worshipped God. He forsook the Lord's table. Yet he thought God had blessed him. And when I asked the preacher what he thought, the preacher told him, nice catch, wrong day. God didn't bless you, the devil did. If the devil can get you to miss worshipping God, he'll do it. Even if it means making you financially wealthy, the greatest golfer, the greatest fisherman, the greatest football player, whatever you fill in the blank. I once heard of a husband and wife who were Christians. They purchased a small restaurant. They worked very hard at keeping it running. And after a few months, they started to miss Wednesday night Bible study because of the preparations that needed to be made for the next day. And as the business began to be more successful, they started sporadically missing Sunday morning worship. Only once a month or so. But eventually it became a bit more because they needed the rest. Not long after they realized that they could make more money, the uh, to give to the Lord if they were open on Sunday afternoon. 
And they would come to worship and then they'd go to the restaurant. But they really required a lot of hard work. And after just a few months, they stopped coming because God had blessed them with this great restaurant. They felt they should work at it with all their time and energy. Why? To please God? No. But Satan must have been real happy. Now granted, God can financially bless you and help you move up in the world where you live, but the key is how and when do you use the things which you receive? Think about it. The lust of the eyes is another device of the devil. Number three, the pride of life. In the third instance, John changes his terminology. In defining the things of the world, the final appeal is to not love or give self to the pride of life or or love or give self to the pride of life or empty boastfulness of this earthly life. The word which our English versions uh, render pride is aladzodea. It literally means it's purposeless wanderer or imposter or hence a boaster. One who pretends to be that which he is not. One who loves or gives himself to such emptiness has not the love of the Father. You know, it's not surprising to find that Paul uses a derivative of this same word to describe one who does not love with Christian love. Paul said that one without Christian love has become sounding brass or a twanging cymbal. The word rendered symbol is ulaladzin, a form of aladzonine, which is used in 1 John 2.16. It was originally a Greek battle cry, shouted at the enemy to strike fear during a charge. It was a hollow boasting noise which meant absolutely nothing. There are those who love, who give themselves to the nothingness, the boastful noise of this world. Let me ask you, how long would it take if I stood here with a cymbal and a a drumstick, and just kept beating on that cymbal. How long would it take before you'd probably get up and walk out? Two seconds. <laughs> it would drive you crazy. I wouldn't last that long. That was hurting my arm. <laughs> Think about it. We wouldn't like that, but that's what he says here. That's how he defines this. The sound of brass or a clanging cymbal. Vance Packard wrote a book called The Status Seekers and his indictment of people who all their lives claw and scratch all the baubles which they set them just one notch above their neighbors. It is the old cliche keeping up with the Joneses. The Joneses got a boat. Guess what we got to do, honey? Trade in that old boat for a bigger, newer boat. And what are the Joneses going to do when they see your bigger, newer boat? They're going to get a bigger, newer boat because they know you. They're not going to let you get a bigger boat than them. Christians are to have more meaningful set of values. The right love, the Father's love, is for people, not for appetites and desires or things. John entreats us not to give ourselves to these empty pursuits. Those who live for the things of the world are not of the Father, but of the world. Look back at Eve, verse 6 of the third chapter of Genesis, what did she say? It's a tree desirable to make one wise. Satan plays upon her desire to be wise. The devil tempted Eve into thinking she was going to be like God. Remember what he said? God knows in the day that you eat of it, 
you are, your eyes will be opened and you will be more like Him. Brothers and sisters, we hear a lot of preaching about the sins of the eyes and the flesh, but this third one's a killer too, and we don't usually hear much about it. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, it says the knowledge puffs up. How true that is. We see this often with children. I know something you don't know. You ever hear that before? That statement tells you that you're dealing with one who is giving into the pride of life. When we are older, we realize the child's statement is wrong, so we don't say it, but we still give in to the temptation of the pride of life. We just use our knowledge in a more cunning way. Perhaps to blackmail or manipulate someone. Sally, guess what I heard? You know, anything that starts out, <clears throat> guess what I heard? And you're trying to do it in a low voice, probably is something that shouldn't be said. She thought it was going to make her wise. What about Jesus? The devil took him up to the holy city, put him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Hey, hey, yo, Jesus, you're the Son of God, right? You have special privileges. Be proud of who you are. Show it off, man. If you got it, flaunt it. Throw yourself down or you won't even land. The angels will swoop down and rescue you. Don't let knowledge puff you up. Don't let possessions puff you up. And don't go around tooting your own horn. Beware of temptation that always has you sounding off about your knowledge. Remember, a fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Self-control. If we give in like Eve, the result will be the same. The devil and we will both be punished. You can note a difference between Eve and Jesus. Jesus used the word of God and always believed in God. You know, every time Jesus resisted the temptation, he used these words. It is written. It is written. <coughs> You can note the difference. Jesus never doubted the character of God. Eve doubted the goodness of God. In James 4, 7 and 8, it says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You see, Jesus resisted the devil's temptation by staying close to the word of God. And the devil, what did the old devil do? He fled. He resi Jesus resisted him, and he took off. It still works today, folks. That's why I encourage us all to read the Scriptures, study the Scriptures, know the Scriptures. When Satan comes along, you can remember those things, and he can flee from you. John said there in verse 17, the second chapter of 1 John, the world is passing away, the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. See, the misdirection of love against which we are warned in this scripture is the negative side of the same test which presented in the preceding verses. If we do love our brothers, we are of God. If we love the things of the world, we are not of God. And in verse 4, 17, we are confronted with the contrasting results 
of the two opposing loves. One becomes more and more like that which he or she loves. If he or she loves the world, he takes on more and more the nature of the world. And if he or she loves the Father and expresses that love in love of his brothers and sisters, he becomes more and more like the Father. The consequences are eternal. The world is passing away in the things of it. The one who loves the world becomes secular as the world is secular, and so will also pass away. In contrast, the Father is eternal. The one who loves as he loves becomes more and more like him, and so will remain into eternity. You know, one of the most pathetic utterances in modern language is that which says some Christian person has passed away. And I've tried to get away from that vernacular. This is very apt at the death of one who has loved the things of the world, but is nothing short of dishonest at the funeral of one who has directed his or her love toward one's brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians do not pass away. The world passes away, and those who love it, Christians live on with Christ in heaven. A person, a Christian who dies, what have they done? They just changed addresses. They just changed addresses. They're living in a new home. The one that we're all looking forward to get to one day. think about it. I heard a little bit of this on the radio this morning. I shared a little bit in Sunday school, but a lot of times doing the right thing can bring pain, can it? For some people, they don't want to deal with the pain, so they don't do the right thing. But think about it. Sometimes doing the right thing brings pain. My mom went in a lot of pain to give birth to me. And then she didn't realize what a big pain I was going to be after her. <laughs> Used the illustration this morning in Sunday school, Joseph, Joseph gave up everything he knew when he ran out of that Potiphar's house because Mrs. Potiphar wanted to have sex with him. She even grabbed his coat and tore it right off his body. He ran out in the street naked. Then she lied about it. He was thrown into prison. Where he was in prison for quite some time. You see, it brought a lot of pain to Joseph to do what was right. It caused God a lot of pain to have Jesus go and die on the cross for us. To be redeemed back to Him. Because of our sin. It's going to be awful painful on the day of judgment. We stand before God and He's looking down at us and He would ask this question. Why did you never give your life to Jesus? You had the opportunities. Why did you turn away? And we will stand there without an answer. Or when God says, on such and such a date, you gave your life to Jesus. You were baptized.